Welcome to People and Profit. I'm Kate Moody. Coming up, is the EU's clean tech plan enough to keep up with America's green subsidies? We'll speak to Schneider Electric about the impact on its business. South Africa is still in the dark as its electricity shortages are declared a national state of disaster. How did the country get to this point? And an influx of Russian money has led to a real estate boom in Dubai, but other residents are struggling with the resulting jump in property prices. The European Union is trying to level the transatlantic playing field and make its industry more competitive. The sweeping green subsidies outlined in America's Inflation Reduction Act last year set off alarm bells in Brussels as member states worried they would lose out on investment and business. Washington has outlined tax credits and other incentives for manufacturers who make things like electric batteries or solar panels in the U.S., as well as for consumers who buy domestic. The EU has since countered with its own clean tech industrial plan, which includes loosening rules on state aid and permitting for sustainable projects. European officials, including French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire, have also been negotiating with their U.S. counterparts to extend those benefits to some EU-made components and materials. We agreed on the need for full transparency between the U.S. and Europe on the amount of public support that would be given to private companies. We also agreed on the need to extend the application of the Inflation Reduction Act to as many European components as possible, electric vehicles, but also electric batteries and critical materials. Let's speak to Gwenaëlle Avis-Hue, Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer at Schneider Electric. Thanks for being with us on the program today. Your firm is French, but it does business in the United States, and you're actually based in Boston. Uh, can you give us a couple of concrete examples of how Schneider has been impacted by the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act? Yes, thank you very much for the question. So Schneider Electric uh, is a company doing energy management, industrial automation. And in the U.S., we are quite significant because we have 19,000 employees, 21 plants. So it's a big country for us. And you're absolutely right. Inflation Reduction Act is, a sing- is the single largest investment in climate and clean energy transition. So concretely, it's lots of tax rebates and grants and loans in order to accelerate electrification and at the same time reduce uh, the emissions. Concretely for us, we are doing a lot around electrification, around solar distributed, around EV charging, electrical vehicle charging, and things like that. So it will be an enabler for further acceleration into electrification on one side, into energy efficiency on the other side, and into what we call distributed energy, more local energy at the site of the customer. What about the EU response? Will the Clean Tech Industrial Act help Schneider? And do you think it goes far enough to help balance out things for European businesses? Well, again, Europe is also a very good, very important continent for us. We have like more than 50,000 employees in Europe, 75 factories, so big continent for us. You're absolutely right. I think that the Clean Tech Act was a good reaction. We needed to have a framework around industry in order to make sure that we have something to boost industry in Europe. Now the question is, is it enough? 
And basically, I think first, it's good that we have something on the table. It's very much focused on stated exemption because tax rebates, etc., are much more complicated at the European level. And it's very much also focused on acceleration of permitting processes, etc., in order to move faster towards renewable. Very positive. Is it enough? Not yet. Why? Because mainly it's focused on supply, meaning greening uh, the electricity renewables and things like that. We need to talk about demand, how to reduce the consumption on energy. And this is, you know, well, uh, not well identified in this target, in this program from the European Commission. How does China play into all this? Because it has huge subsidies for electric battery, electric car manufacturing, for example. Does that leave players in the United States and EU at a disadvantage? Well, you know, we shouldn't oppose one country to another when it comes to climate change. It's a global target. What's happening in China in order to make a transition happen in China is also positive. Now there are elements. For example, in Europe, we're talking about security of supply, but also in raw materials. This is a good question. When it comes to energy transition, we need to make sure that we have the raw materials. We need to make sure that we have semiconductors. You mentioned the importance of raw materials in this equation. China of course, produces a huge amount of things like nickel, copper, lithium, uh, ingredients that are really critical for the green transition. Do you think other nations can break that monopoly? How do they secure their own supplies of those important, of those important products? Very good question. I think first we need to work on the supply chain, all in all, for critical materials. And to do that, we need to make sure that we embark a circular economy. When we uh, use uh, raw materials, at the end of the day, what we should do at the European level, for example, is to make sure that we have the means to recycle those raw materials. It's not only where we extract the raw materials, because you know we have distributed raw materials across the globe, it's how to use them more efficiently on one side and how to have a circular economy being implemented across the world. Just briefly, what, in your opinion, is the most exciting or promising innovation in this sphere? Well, it's digital. It's everything that is not visible. You know, we are always talking about solar, wind, etc. This is okay. Yes, we need that. But the biggest enabler of the energy transition is digital. How to optimize the consumption in a given building, for example, you implement digital tool and then you can reduce the consumption of the given building by 20 to 40 percent just by implementing digital. So, yes, the biggest hope in terms of innovation is to make visible what is invisible, which is digital. Gwenael avis thank you so much for joining us on People in Profit today. Thank you. Well, South Africa has faced months of rolling blackouts with businesses and households often left in the dark. The power cuts have put many people's livelihoods at risk, and the central bank estimates they could shave up to two percentage points off economic growth this year. Amid deepening criticism, President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a state of disaster, in theory, giving the government more tools and leeway to deal with the crisis. The crisis has progressively evolved to affect every part of society. We must act to lessen the impact of the crisis on farmers, on small businesses, on our water infrastructure, on our transport network, and a number of other areas and facilities that support our people's lives. 
Charles Pellegrin is here with more. First of all, tell us, where does South Africa get its electricity from? Well, South Africa is mostly dependent on coal for its electricity and almost wholly dependent on one state-owned utility, ESCOM, to distribute it. Looking at the electricity mix more closely, 81.3% of it comes from coal plants, with the rest divided between renewable energy like wind, solar and hydro, which represent 13.4%, as well as nuclear power and diesel. The aim is to move away from coal and towards more renewable energy. That's proved to be a slow process despite financial aid from the likes of the US and EU. Power cuts are nothing new in South Africa, but how did this situation get this bad? Well, ESCOM has been dogged by various problems for decades, but things really took a turn for the worse in the last 15 years, culminating in a situation where South Africa experienced power cuts over 200 days last year. The utility is over 24 billion euros in debt and strapped for cash in spite of tariff increases for consumers. This means it's been unable to buy diesel for emergency generators and has relied on government bailouts over the years to stay afloat. The company's power plants and infrastructure are also aging and malfunctioning. And on top of that, ESCOM has had to deal with workers going on strike. But perhaps the most important are allegations of corruption, especially during Jacob Zuma's presidency. A judicial commission described an orchestrated attempt by Zuma's allies to raid ESCOM's coffers with his tacit consent. So how might this declaration of a state of disaster help things? Well, President Cyril Ramaphosa described the constant power cuts as an existential threat to South Africa's economy. The emergency measures would exempt critical infrastructure like hospitals and water treatment plants from load shedding or scheduled cuts. It would remove red tape and speed up the appearance of new energy projects. Licensing requirements for companies to build their own power plants have been scrapped. Additional funds will also be made available and a minister of electricity will be appointed to oversee the sector. The plan has its critics, though, with many fearing the centralization of power could lead to further corruption. Charles Pellegrin, thanks so much for that. Well, since Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, many of its own citizens have tried to build new lives elsewhere. For wealthy Russian families, Dubai has long been a coveted vacation destination. But more recently, they've turned to the glitzy city as a more permanent residence. The influx of Russian wealth has given a boost to the flagging real estate market, but put the squeeze on other expats there. Emerald Maxwell has more. After lying dormant for years following the 2008 recession, ambitious construction projects are back in Dubai. A boom that can be explained, at least in part, by Moscow's war on Ukraine. In the past year, Russians have flocked to the city, which has provided a safe haven for them and their money. The number one purchaser, overseas purchaser, was, was Russian nationals, and that was followed by UK nationals, then Indian nationals. Russia took the top spot for obvious reasons. You know, we have seen a lot of Russians, a lot of Ukrainians as well, um, looking to both move their family and, um, and, and money out. There are concerns some of the purchases may be linked to money laundering by sanctioned allies of Vladimir Putin. Others, the result of anti-war Russians fleeing their country. There's no data on either. But the increased investment is having a knock-on effect on rents in Dubai, up an average of nearly 27% year-on-year. It's beginning to squeeze the middle-class foreign workforce the Emirates rely on. This British car salesman is moving from his villa to a smaller apartment. Because of 
the the way the market is now and it's so it's so expensive you're almost you we are definitely downsizing dubai has a history of profiting from crises from the arab spring and wars in the middle east to covid 19. the us has repeatedly raised concerns that its gulf ally is becoming a hub for illicit money through insufficient due diligence hampering efforts to curb moscow's aggressive war but Dubai's real estate market is showing no signs of slowing down. That's all for now. Don't forget you can find this and our previous shows on the France 24 website or as a podcast wherever you usually listen. You can also get in touch with your comments and questions on social media. Until next time, thanks for watching. From North to South Africa, from Bamako to Nairobi, from Accra to Mogadishu. Bringing you all the political, economic, cultural and social news from Africa for a better insight into an ever-changing continent. Across Africa, presented by Georgia Calvin-Smith on France 24 and France24.com.